Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Guys, for those of y'all that don't know me, my name is Nathan, um, one of the pastors here on staff of the Christ Chapel. This is Amy Foster. She's our director of shepherding here in the college ministry, and she is amazing. And that is Ryan McCarthy. Um, and he's one of the pastors over at what we call the mothership in the soul care department. So he does biblical counseling. And um, man, I'm excited that they get to be up here. Um, obviously, we've been, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, right? Um, we we've come a long way and we've seen a couple of themes pop up of a Jesus is better. Um, we can approach and draw near the God of the universe, which is really amazing. And then there's this idea that keeps popping up of the high priest. And we're going to kind of unpack a lot of that. Basically, we're just going to recap where we've been and how um, that actually affects our day-to-day life. And so we thought who better to bring up here than these two, because Amy, um, before coming on staff with us, college ministry, she was also at the mothership um, in women's ministry and basically, over there, you do, like, in-depth Bible studies every week with hundreds of women. Um, you're teaching the Word and going through it systematically. And this semester, you've actually been doing the book of Hebrews, so you've engaged with it quite a bit, so you know a lot about it. Um, and then, Ryan, you are just packed with wisdom. These, both, both of these people, it, you'll, you'll hear it when they talk. It is evident that they have a deep, rich, and intimate relationship with Jesus. And I think that's going to come out um, here. But... I'm going to stop talking about you. You can talk about yourselves and share some story with them. Um, Amy, why don't you tell them who you are and a little bit about your story and how you came to the Lord and all that good stuff. Okay. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for caring about the Lord. Um, you know, we're really talking a lot in Hebrews about the idea of Jesus is a high priest, and because of that, we can draw near to God. And it's so interesting, as Ryan and I were preparing and just talking about our own stories with God, there are these stories of drawing near and finding God available, uh, sympathetic, compassionate, merciful. So I'll take a few minutes and just tell you a little bit about my life with God. Oftentimes, you'll hear somebody's story about God, and it's, you know, a long period of aching, searching, longing, difficulty, and they finally land with God and they find relief. And I'm going to tell you my story is the absolute opposite of that. It sort of works backwards that way. There was no long searching period in my life before I met Jesus. I was four um, when, when I really decided I was going to give my life to God and believe in Jesus. And it was an easy decision for me because I had beautiful, beautiful parents who loved Jesus, lived Jesus in our life. And it wasn't just my parents. It was my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents. Um, And because of the way we talked about sin and God and holiness, at four years old, I knew I was a little baby sinner. Um, I knew every time I made my brother mad and took his toy, I was a sinner. I knew when I didn't obey my mom, I was a sinner because that was, you know, that was the language we spoke. But I also knew that there was a loving, holy God who wanted to be close to me. And so as soon as I learned that there was a loving Savior who paid my price of my sins so I could be close to God, 
That was an easy decision even for a four-year-old. So I think I probably prayed that prayer the first time when I was four. Um, I prayed it again at five and six and seven because I wanted to make sure it really took, and God heard a little person like me. And that was the beginning of my life with God, and it was sweet and it was beautiful. Um, but I kind of had a four-year-old view of God. Well, those periods of longing and searching and hurting that lead other people to God, those came later in my life, and they proved to be these opportunities to draw near to God and then find that God will draw near to you, and which is really what we're going to be talking about tonight. <clears throat> so I'll share with you my first experience of that. I was a freshman in high school. I had this lovely family, but in a very short period of time, my mother developed a debilitating mental illness. And she would experience episodes of mania, which was just a lot of hyper, sleepless, agitated um, days and hours. And those man manic episodes would escalate over weeks and weeks until my mother would lose touch with reality. She would become psychotic and have to be hospitalized for weeks, sometimes months. When she would come home from the hospital, she would be so depressed she would just stay on the couch and not really engage and interact, and she'd stay like that for a while until the mania started again. And that was just such a loss in my life. I have these memories of walking home in high school, being fearful about how much craziness we would, we would be dealing with that afternoon. And my only way to draw near to God was just to talk to him in prayer. And so I would just pray while I was walking. And God drew near to me in that time in a pretty remarkable way. He started bringing all these verses, these words from the Bible that I had memorized as a child. He started just pulling those up from my soul, speaking them in my ear. And it was like God was walking home from school with me, saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You're my beloved. I've chosen you. You're mine. I'll love you forever. I can redeem anything. God was just meeting me through his words while I walked home from school. And you know, James 4, 8 says, this is God speaking. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And that really was my first experience of having that very, very real in my young life. Well, I went on and went to college. While I was at college, I was in a ministry a little bit like this one and I fell in love with a young man there. We, we uh, got married, started our careers, a few years later started a family. But from the beginning, it was, uh, it was not a, a healthy marriage. It was a confusing and a disorienting marriage. I didn't really understand what was wrong with it, but I knew it was kind of home was sort of a hurtful place for me. I thought that it was honoring to my husband not to talk about that, so I didn't talk to anyone about it. It was a very lonely time. Um, as the kids came along, I really felt the loss of my mom. I wanted a mentor. I wanted somebody who I could talk to about being a wife and a mother, and that wasn't available. And that's when I started drawing near to God through Bible study. And this was kind of intensive, looking at the Bible, not just what we do in our morning devotions, not a quick read. And I was just blown away how I found God in that experience. Um, the advice I needed, the wisdom I needed from a mom or a mentor I was finding in his word, uh, the comfort that I needed to kind of fill the loneliness, um, the peace I needed with all those big question marks about my life, I was finding that in God's word. He was just drawing near to me. Well, the marriage went on, and at about the 16-year mark, things were more difficult and more confusing. 
And there was one night, I don't know why it happened on this night, but we put the kids to bed, and my husband just started confessing. And neither one of us went to bed that night. All night long, he confessed one thing after another after another. And he shared with me that he had been gay his whole life and that he had a um, long sexual history before we'd met that he had covered up and kept secret. And then he also shared with me that very shortly after we started our marriage, he developed a secret life on the side that was very full and very involved. And I think the hardest thing about that night was he said to me, I lie to you about everything. And I suddenly understood why I was always so confused and disoriented. So that was a pretty shocking, devastating revelation. And that was a time to draw near to God with an intensity like I'd never known before. That's what I started doing. Within the months that followed, um, my husband did decide to leave our family. A lot of other things came out, and at the end of that journey, I was divorced and financially bankrupt, and I was the sole custodian raising my three sons. And I'll be honest with you, I thought I was completely broken and destroyed. I didn't believe my heart, my soul, could ever be put back together again. So it was just drawing near to God out of desperation, um, intense Bible study, scripture meditation, memorizing scriptures just so I could hold them with me all day long, lots of prayer, both talking to God and listening to God, lots of solitude, silence, and the truth was I didn't feel safe with people, so God was the only thing that was safe. So I was just retreating into God. And God was meeting me there in a way that really kind of blew my mind. It was a heartbroken season, but it was also a time when I felt like I was God's favorite. You know, of all the children I knew, I was so carefully loved and tended to during that time. And he was giving me wisdom. He was giving me answers here and how to make, you know, really tough decisions, legal decisions. He was providing for our family. A few instances in legal battles, I think he gave us some miraculous help. And he was just being this comforting presence, just helping me want to live. And this took a long time, but, but after a while, God was even healing this part of me that I was sure had been broken forever. And it was just a remarkable experience of thinking I knew God and then finding he was so much bigger, so much greater, so much more creative uh, than I had ever imagined him to be, all from this, this enduring experience of draw near to God, draw near to God. Um, so that's really become the rule of my life. Draw near to God and wait for him to draw near to you because he does. And that's really kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Man, yeah, way to kick that off. That's a beautiful story. A lot of hurt, a lot of brokenness, but a lot of restoration and healing and the nearness of the Lord is just evident in that. And I want to highlight, there's a lot of things that I'm hearing in your story, but I want to highlight one thing. And knowing you, it's it's perfectly fitting, but your experience of drawing near to God and him drawing near to you was through you cultivating space for that to happen and having an intentional effort to create space in Bible study and meditation and like you said, solitude and these things that don't naturally come easy to us and they're disciplines, they're spiritual disciplines in order for us to draw near to God and fix our eyes on Jesus and let him in return draw near to us and restore our souls and meet us where we're at. And, and I think that's so sweet and it's a good reminder for me that that is worth it. It's worth it to have those spiritual disciplines in my life to feel the nearness of the Lord um, and to truly experience it. Um, I love that. 
Um, Ryan, I want to move to you. By the way, Ryan like has mentored me for years. Um, when I did the residency program before coming on staff to Christ Chapel, he did a bunch of biblical counseling for me, then did mine and my wife's marriage counseling, filled with so much wisdom. I love the man. Um, Ryan, why don't you share your story with the rest of us? Cool. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Kansas City area, and uh, my mom passed away when I was five, and my, my parents, my dad remarried. I remember one of the first things they told me is they would never get a divorce, and if you know how to write story, a story that would be foreshadowing, because it would be nine years later, I remember I was, I just got my first car, I had a job at Winstead's as a dishwasher, and um, I was on my way to work. My parents stopped me before I left and said, hey, we've been seeing a marriage counselor and we want to let you know we don't think it's going to work out. And I remember I remember going to work, washing dishes, and it felt like someone had dumped me. I it was my heart was uh, hurting and and hardening. I think Uh, we were a a family that would go to church when my grandparents were watching. That's a bit, that was about it. Otherwise, we didn't really have much of a connection. Um, But when my parents went ahead and divorced, it seemed to all go really quickly. My mom, my st- you know, stepmom, who was really, really strict, she, once they divorced, she moved to Norway and married a guy named Steiner Omre, of course. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah, I, wouldn't, I couldn't make that up if I tried. All of a sudden, I'm living, my brother's off at college, and I, I've got a car, and my dad was sort of like this midlife crisis successful guy, and he was always out. So I just had total freedom and a car, and a hurting heart, and I remember somebody took me to a thing like Young Life in Kansas City, and it was uh, a Kansas City Chiefs guy, which I want to know the score, but uh, a football player shared uh, his faith, and on the way home, my friend who took me there shared the gospel with me, and my answer was, hell no. (laughs) Why would I replace my strict mom with an even stricter God? I've got the world at my fingertips right now, and and I, I said no with an intellectual reason. You know, the intellectually, I can't, I can't uh, agree with that. But in reality, uh, I wanted to do what I wanted to do without someone telling me, don't do that. And if you were to just kind of step back and look at my life, I was succeeding, the grades were going well, I was like student council, all that stuff. Everything seemed to be going well, but in private, I was, I was more desperate for, you know, to sleep with women and, and get drunk and start experimenting with drugs and stuff. It's around that same time period, I got a letter from a school I'd never heard of called TCU. And I had two prejudices in life, and they were Texans and Christians, honestly. Like, and yet, I, they, they wanted, they were looking for drummers, and I you know that's, that was my thing. I sent a tape, which I know I'm old, but I sent a tape, and I got a scholarship offer, so I thought, I'll check this out, and I came down. Well, I really liked it. I came down in November, and the weather was really nice, and I couldn't help but notice that the girls outnumbered the guys seven to one, and Playboy had rated it the third best-looking school in the country, and I was like, I like my odds here. I'll try it, you know, so... Didn't really work because I had a chip on my shoulder. I didn't really fit in. I came. Uh, I was in the marching band and jazz band, did all that stuff. But anytime I met somebody who let me know that they were Christian, I would debate with them immediately. And I would often feel like I won because people would say stuff like, well, you just got to have faith. You know, they wouldn't know the answers to these recycled arguments that I was giving. I heard them from other people. And 
but I'd walk away thinking, well, you're an idiot, you know? I, and I felt justified as my, in my atheism until I met this uh, trumpet player named, his, his name is Chris. We were leaving Daniel Meyer, Meyer Coliseum, walking to Clark Dorm, and in that short walk, he, it came up that he was a Christian, and I kind of started attacking him, and he just, he was like, well, that's, that's a good point, but have you thought of this? No, I haven't. And he goes, well, and he would have some answers. I don't remember any of the specifics. I just remember thinking, oh, maybe not all Christians are idiots. And then when we got to the steps of, you know, Clark, and um, it was like getting kind of late, he said, hey, I got to go to bed, but let me ask you, is it possible you could be wrong? Sure, sure it's possible. I mean, um, okay, if Jesus were the Son of God, if God existed, if all that were true, would you want to know it? I remember thinking, like, well, you're in the right to, you know, to be honest with you. Yeah, I guess I'd want to know that, sure. So he said, why don't you go up to your room and just say one prayer and ask God to reveal himself, reveal that to you if it's true. I remember specifically looking at my ceiling tiles and sincerely praying. Nothing happened. But a month later, I went up to KU to visit my friends, and it was only the second time I had done shrooms. (laughs) But what else do you do when you go to KU? I mean... (laughs) Sorry. It's true. No, but <laughs> you know, just take it, KU. All right. Well, anyway, um, I had never had a bad trip or experience. I had done other drugs, but I, an hour and a half passed, and I'm thinking, I got ripped off. I mean, there's nothing happening here. And all of a sudden, I noticed that my knees tasted funny. Hmm. That's weird. They tasted like blood, though. Okay, I was having a cross-sensory experience, okay? So if you, in case you heard me right. It tasted almost like all, from all of a sudden the taste spread to my whole lower body and it, from like my waist down, it tasted like I was soaking in blood. And I was like, this isn't gonna be fun. And I, I, got the, I realized all of a sudden, I'm gonna have a bad trip here. I've never had one. And the image immediately came into my head of like being put into a, a roller coaster where they put the thing down and you're like, I don't wanna be on this now. And it's like, you're not getting off, right? It's in you. And so it was all right, brace yourself because this isn't gonna be good. Well, everything kind of happened quickly from my perspective here was I, I felt my soul getting pulled down. Like I didn't believe in a soul, right? But if my soul were rocks, and you put rocks in a sock, the sock would stretch and sag, right? I felt like my soul were the rocks, but my physical life was the sock, kind of holding it up. But it was almost like an out-of-body experience. It was terrifying. And as that was happening, I remember thinking all these morbid thoughts that I didn't want to think about. Like, my mind was taking me places I didn't want to go. And I remember at one point thinking, as it got worse, I was thinking, I'm about to lose it, and my friends are going to have to hold me down as I'm shaking and stuff. And um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. There's a lot of detail. <laughs> and you didn't come here to be disturbed. Um, I remember thinking if there's, there's a gun here, I'd shoot my friends and then I'd shoot myself. And that's, that wasn't me. I wasn't that guy, you know. And I remember in my mind seeing TCU st- headline, like a newspaper headline, TCU student kills friends, comma, self. And just, whoa. And I was just like, of course I would do it, but I didn't want to. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're like standing on the edge of a cliff and you thought, if I took a step, I would die. And you don't want to, but you, you kind of have to pull back because you're afraid that something in you might take over and just do it. Anybody been, had that? Well, don't, don't nod. Um, it was like that was a, a separate force in me saying you would do it. And I started 
started to realize there's something else going on here. And then I started noticing faces coming out of the walls. And like, okay, hallucina hallucination, right? But they were, smile they were smiling, but smiles of rage. And I knew they were demons. I knew they knew me. And all these things kind of occurred to me simultaneously. I knew that I was not feeling emotional pain. It wasn't physical pain. It was spiritual torment. I also knew that what I was feeling with my soul was a foretaste of where I would go if I killed myself. I knew that it would be like cutting off that sock. I knew I was going to hell with crystal clarity. And it also, and everything I'm saying here, I could point to verses in Romans. I'd never read Romans, but I knew that if I were to kill myself and I was going to hell, I knew that was like what I had chosen. I didn't want to go to hell, but I, I realized, of course I'm going to hell because I hate God. I, and I knew in that moment I never was an atheist. I just hated God. The only way I could fight against him was to say he didn't exist. I don't believe atheists exist. And Romans 1.18 says, you know, in, in our weakness, we suppress the truth. By our wickedness, God makes himself evident to everybody, but we want to do our own thing. We suppress the truth, and we go our own way. And God says, all right, your will be done. And he lets people go their way. And then in chapter 2, it talks about when it comes to the judgment, people will have their mouth, they will shut their mouths because they, they know there's no defense. And I had that kind of foxhole clarity that this is where I'm going, and I'm 30 minutes into a trip that's supposed to last six hours. And I'm thinking, I can't handle another five seconds of this. So I, I, and I just thought, I just remember thinking to myself, God, please save me. And immediately, he sobered me the moment I thought that. It's like he flipped on the lights in a dark room. There was no battle. I was totally not expecting that. I thought, would you say, please save me, Lord? And I didn't even pray it out loud. But the demonic presence was gone as soon as I thought it. And it was like God rescued me as quickly as I would rescue my son if he were drowning. He was sovereign. He was personal. He was merciful. He was loving. He wasn't like, look who's crawling back. You know, He, he, he rescued me, and I, I was dumbfounded. I actually started sharing the gospel with having no vocabulary to my tripping friends who probably thought I was like really messed up. But I, I remember um, my beef, I couldn't have articulated the gospel, but my beef with, was with Christ. And I knew it was Christ who had saved me. Anytime I heard any biblical truth or the gospel, it was like water to my soul and it clung to me. Anytime I heard an analogy describing the Christian faith, it was like, oh, that's, I, I it's like trying, God, trying to talk about God was like trying to push God through a tube of language. I didn't, it was too small. And that's probably why I like to teach now because, but anyways, I'm going into more detail than you probably wanted. Um, yeah, so that was, I will say the only thing I quit that night were shrooms. It took me about a year to look like a Christian. Like, I had to, if you touch a hot stove and it burns you, you, you don't do it again. Yeah, I, I was too afraid to do shrooms again. I had to have a similar experience on pot. I, honestly, last time I did it was at a Pink Floyd concert. I, you know, I, if you know Pink Floyd, it's like, it's cliche. Um, and uh, drunk driving wreck, all, all these things happened in the first year. They were all scared me out of the things that I was flirting with, and it took me about a year before I looked like a Christian And because um, we're slow and resistant to change. That was all two months ago. <laughs> this was last week. <laughs> that, was, that was last week. It's been a good, good week since. Oh, man. I love that, and I love the detail. Uh, I want to highlight, honestly, three things. A, praise God for Chris, the trumpet player. 
Um, great. Friend. By the way, I told Chris later about that, and he was like, "Oh, well, cool." It's like he didn't really care. <laughs> I don't think he was like a really like solid Christian. Just so you know, like I think that might be an encouragement for some of us. He was just faithfully talking and stuff, and God decided to use him. But he wasn't one of these like fiery evangelist guys. Yeah, I love that. I also want to highlight. You saying that that wild experience happened. The only thing you quit that night was shrooms. And then it took you a year to take these habits out of your life and these things that were keeping you from the Lord and drawing near to the Lord. And I think that's a nice reminder for me and for all of us in this room of like the Christian life is this long, slow obedience. I know you love that. Um, Eugene Peterson has said that. And it's just a, a slow dimmer, as Ben has said before, of like sin leaving your life and looking more and more like Jesus. And it's it's not going to happen all at once where you're going to look perfect and you're never going to be perfect, but oh, yeah. it's a long, a, a year later I still was yeah. questionable, you know, in a yeah, lot of ways. Totally. And I think that's just a great encouragement and reminder to keep in front of us. And then the last thing I just want to highlight before we move on is you just heard two amazingly, beautifully profound stories, right? Wild in some ways you were tripping on shrooms, but, <laughs> uh, what I don't want you guys to hear is I don't want you to hear two people whose faith is more valid or whose relationship with Jesus is more true or sincere because they have these crazy redemptive stories. That That's not the case. We are all stories of broken people who are far off. These two stories are stories of people who are broken and far off and who the Lord in his grace and in his kindness drew close and drew near and redeemed. And now these two are walking with Jesus day by day. And so take that as an encouragement. Um, but I want us to unpack a couple things to go into the dive into the book of Hebrews. We've unpacked a lot over the past semester. It's been a couple months now. Jesus is better. We can approach God. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I want to start with the idea of the high priest. Um, we see Jesus as the high priest. We Therefore, we have a high priest. It, it's all over Hebrews. I just want to ask you, what does that even mean? Like, why does it matter that Jesus functions in relationship to us as a high priest? What is a high priest? Because I don't, I don't really know how to relate to a priest. I even grew up in a Catholic background, and I feel like that's the closest I can get to it. But even I don't even understand the role of a priest. One of y'all start un- unpacking, unpacking that for me. Sure. Um, you know... Uh, the priesthood is God's idea. God was the one who initiated that, and it started way back with the children of Israel, the Jewish nation, when you know God called them out to be his special people. And what God was doing, he was giving them physical, tangible things to help them understand spiritual things. So he's giving them things they could actually see with their eyes to represent the things they couldn't see with their eyes. And the priesthood is one of those things. But just think about, you know, he told them to build a tabernacle or a temple. And he said in the middle of it, you build this closed off little room called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the spirit of God, the presence of God dwelt and nobody gets to go in there. Okay, so, th- so that's a real tangible um, thing for them to see representing God's holiness and we can't approach. And then he gives them the sacrificial system. And he says, okay, because you're sinful and you want to approach God, innocent life must be shed. Innocent animals must be killed as sacrifices to pay for your sin. And the priests would participate in that role. And so the priests 
were the people who were designated to represent the people in front of God. And the priests would sacrifice those animals, and then they would take the animal's blood, and only one day of year, with this sacrifice, the priest could enter the presence of God and offer the blood to God, and God would extend forgiveness. And then they would do it over and over again the next year. So God's given them this idea of a priest, showing them there is a need for a person who can represent sinful men to God. There needs to be a person who can carry the sacrifice in so that forgiveness is achieved. He does all of it to get us, to get them ready for Jesus, to get us ready for Jesus. So we can understand this idea of that's what the priest does for us and and look what Jesus does he he offers the perfect sacrifice himself his holy self he presents himself to God and it's such an acceptable sacrifice that the doors are blown open and God's presence is now available to anyone who enters under the name of Jesus and that's this idea of old testament priesthood that's connected to Jesus now yeah um i would say too i mean there to, to think you can like waltz into the presence of God, it might be uh, something we're used to because we've been told maybe, maybe we grew up hearing that God loves you and you know, just come into his presence. But um, there can be an ignorance of the fact that, I mean, he is holy. And like if it's like waltzing into the presence of the sun, S-U-N, like the, the it, it will that his holiness will consume you i mean it says in uh, hebrews 12 that god's an all all consuming fire and so and when a priest steps in in between he has to be like who he's representing and who he's representing us before so another way to say it is he needs to be like us and he needs to be unlike us at the same time so the, the high priest in the old testament was like his people he was an israelite he came from one of the 12 tribes he was he walked with his people he knew what life was like but at the same time he was unlike the people that he was set apart. He was wholly devoted to God, and he was chosen by God. Well, in Jesus, it says in uh, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has experienced our temptations. It says in uh, 2.18 and 19, or two, is it 2.18 and 19? Something around there. 17, right? So close. Shame on me. Um, he that he was he was tempted. I mean, he was like us in every way. I mean, he knows he, he didn't take any shortcuts. He like he didn't like show up as a baby and fast forward to age 30. He went through middle school. He experienced the temp same temptations that we experience. He actually experienced them more so because he never gave in, you know, like. At, at some point, I give in. I, I rationalize, or I, I lose my uh, my will, and and I give in. But to say, oh, I know that this temptation is hard, would be like saying, oh, well, I know this car that I'm trying to lift up is heavy, but I don't really know how heavy it is until someone gets under the car and lifts it over their head. Jesus resisted perfectly to the point of shedding his own blood, so he knows perfectly the the temptations, the he sympathizes with us, with, with us in our weakness. He's like us, yet without sin. He was unlike us perfectly. He understands God. He is God. And um, so he's, uh, he's unlike any other high priest. He's perfect. And then obviously his sacrifice is perfect too. I love that. I think that's so good. And you even shared earlier, if it's okay for me to bring it up again, how even when you go to someone in confession or accountability, 
you want someone who's both like you oh, yeah. and unlike you. Do you actually want to unpack yeah, that? Yeah, before yeah, yeah, I'm I've glad you said it. Like uh, we, I run uh, the reengage ministry or marriage ministry for our church, and we actually pick leaders not because they like have marriage figured out and they're coming down from their high mountain to tell other married couples how to do it. But we pick the people who are open about their current struggles and can point to the Lord in the process. But, you know, if if a couple's like, we, yeah, we actually argued on our way here, <laughs> it's it's so disarming, right? I, I struggle. I've always struggled with lust. Um, I would love to tell you I've conquered that, right? But I, whenever I look for an accountability partner, I've had, I've had accountability partners who have said stuff like, what? Well, you're a pastor. You can't, you know, you, you need to you need to nip that in the bud or you can get you fired or whatever. And I'm kind of like, well, it's the last time I'm going to talk to you. Like you. You don't, I don't feel safe talking to this, to this person, but more often there are guys who are like, Oh, you too, man. I, I did too. I struggled too. And they sort of just are drowning with you. You want someone who gets you, but it, is, has their foot on the shore and able to help you out at the same time. Jesus perfectly gets us. He understands where how you're thinking, your whole history. He understands you better than you understand yourself. And he also, and he sympathizes. He, he suffers with you. I mean, like to sympathize, a good verse would be uh, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know a good friend when you call that friend and they get excited with you or they cry with you over the phone just because, you know, because Chad dumped you, right? Um, it's cheesy. But Jesus is the most in tune with us. He sympathizes with us. He cares about us, but he obviously has his foot on the shore. He's able to, to adequately rescue us. Yeah, I love that. I think it's such a beautiful illustration just for me to have in my mind. You brought up, uh, I was about to say Romans, but Hebrews 4 verses 15. I want to go ahead and read, and if you have your Bibles, you can open up to here. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16, because I feel like we're talking a lot about what this part of scripture in the text is highlighting. Um, Starting in verse 14, this is chapter 4, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we that way we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love this passage a lot. It gets at that idea of the high priest and how we can approach God and, and draw near to him in confidence and receive grace. And when I read it, it seems so easy, right? Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't I? He sympathizes with my weakness. It says he's unable to not, like, do that. Like, he gets it, yet without sin. He's like me, yet unlike me. It, everything about that passage screams, Nathan, run to him. Like, he gets it. He understands. He wants you to run to him. Draw near to him in confidence. Receive grace. Receive mercy. And yet, I don't. And I feel like that's where we all are at. Like, what, why is it so difficult to draw near? What, what are the reasons that we don't draw near to God? What keeps us from doing it? What are those barriers? What do y'all think? Yeah, I, I had a lady one time say, I know Jesus is available, but I want somebody with skin on. 
you know, I want somebody I can see and touch. And, and we just have to remember, we're talking about spiritual realities. They're real, but that doesn't mean we can see them with our eyes right now. And so I think we're just so prone to turn to the things that are touchable, you know, material, the things we can see all around us. You know, we will turn to friends who say that's no big deal. Um, we will turn to things that make us feel important. How many likes, how many followers do we have? We'll turn to things that anesthetize us and make us not feel our discomfort. I, I think it's really hard to learn how to turn to something that you can't see standing in front of you. And I think that's one of the, the biggest barriers. Uh, so can I give a little instruction here on a, on a great idea for us? You know, if you think about God gave Israel things that they could see to help them understand this. Um, God has given you an imagination. He's given you the ability to visualize things that aren't physically right in front of you. I think we can visualize this experience of drawing near to God even though we can't see him. And so I'm going to kind of walk you through what that would look like for me. Um, you know, if I'm wanting to draw near to God, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to visualize God in his holiness and I'm afraid to draw near because I know I'm not holy. But then I see Jesus seated beside him, and Jesus waves me in. Come on in. And he turns to God, and he says, she's with me. And then Jesus stands as my advocate. That's the word that God uses for him there, and that's a legal word, and it means Jesus is defending me in front of God, and he's saying her penalty has been paid, her sins are forgiven and forgotten. She can enter your presence. And Jesus waves me in. And then there in the presence of God, if I'm struggling with temptation, I look up in Jesus' face, and I catch his eye, and he looks at me with such compassion and sympathy. He isn't angry. He isn't disappointed. He isn't frustrated with me. And he says, I know. I know temptation. I experienced it too. And then I will visualize telling God and Jesus, I need help. And when I do that, I can see Jesus turning to God the Father, and he says, my sister needs help. My brother needs help. God, our Father, will you send encouragement? Will you send strength? Will you send power? Will you do it in my name for my sister? You can visualize that and know that that is truth. Everything in that description is what Jesus has said he is for you as the high priest. And that helps us want to go to him. So I would definitely say if you're struggling because you can't see it and you can't touch it, then close your eyes and visualize what God has told you is true. Man, that's so good. What do you have to add to that? Why don't, so why don't we draw near more? I mean, I think it's recognizing, and you kind of alluded to this, we're always drawing near to something. I'm always drawing near to whether it's productivity or escape, like escapism, playing a game on my phone or, uh, yeah. Uh, so recognizing what I, t uh, what I am drawing near to. But then when it's time I realize I need, I need to draw near to him, I I'm slow to do it, usually because of shame. Um, I, I feel my unworthiness, or I imagine as God is kind of frustrated or, or dis dis discouraged by me or disappointed. And, and those are two images that need to be countered with the truth. Uh, 
we draw near, verse 16 says, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So you're coming not to the throne of judgment. You're coming to the throne of grace. So God gives grace means a gift that you, you don't deserve. And mercy is when you don't receive what you do deserve, right? We're coming near to a God who he says, draw near to me because it is covered and he longs to show us grace. And I, I think his, he's not unsympathetic. He doesn't, it's like he doesn't get us. He actually gets us better than we do. He knows why we fall to the same sins over and over and what it is that we're looking for and how he alone can satisfy those longings. Um, I, you know, it's an aside, but Isaiah 55 verses six to seven are my favorite verses that counter my image of God naturally. I, verse eight, Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And I have always heard that and assumed that was a, talking about God's mysterious will, that he's, he's intellectually above us. He says thoughts are not our thoughts, and we can't understand him, right? The verses right before it say, um, Draw, uh, Come to me while I may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Uh, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That and, and let him call upon the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. So do, I don't know if you hear that, like, hey, wicked, unrighteous sinner, come to me so that I might ha abundantly pardon you. Not like just pardon you, but abundantly pardon you and have compassion on you. Come to me because I'm not like you. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. I Come to me because I wouldn't judge you the way you would judge you if you knew everything that I know. I, I don't think of God that way, naturally. I think of him as being like, again, here you are. And so I need to draw near with confidence because Jesus is the proof that that's true. The judgment I was supposed to receive, he took on my behalf. The life I, you know, he lived the, the life I was supposed to live and he died the death I was supposed to die. And I come not advertising my own goodness before God. I'm not like qualifying myself. I'm coming disqualified, coming for grace. That actually pleases God. Because I'm saying, as a sinner, I'm trusting what Jesus did for me, and I'm going to be so bold is even like sometimes freshly having committed some sin or something, coming before him in the confidence of what Jesus has done, because the only alternative is confidence of what I've done, and if I succeed, if I like say I, I'm good enough and I pray hard enough and I avoid enough sin, I'm going to become a Pharisee judgmental looking down my nose or i'm gonna fail and i'm gonna give up and be all discouraged those are your two options outside of coming through your high priest yeah that's good stuff thank you both um i love that as we kind of wrap this up i just want to hear one last final word of encouragement for you guys and even just for me what do you want each of us to walk out of here with knowing if there could be one thing that you want us to get and one thing to understand or just to think about what would that be I think we, you know, we've talked a lot about spiritual realities tonight, and so we've talked about that we have a holy God who loves us, we have a merciful Savior who's come to save us, and I think I would want you to be aware of the reality of God and Jesus have an enemy as well, and we don't see that, um, but God tells us all through the scriptures that 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 enemy lies and is after us. And I, I think we all know the lies of the enemy. And the biggest lies probably are you're not good enough, no one understands, and you are all alone. 
I think those are lies that I have heard so much in my life. And if you can grasp and believe the idea of Jesus who has served and is serving as your high priest, you can see how you knock out every one of those lies of Satan. You're not good enough. You don't have to be. Jesus has done that for you. You're all alone. No, that's not true. Jesus is standing beside God saying, draw near, draw near. You know, and no one understands. Jesus put on flesh so he could feel all the things that we feel, so he could experience temptation the way we do. Um, all the truths we have with Jesus as our high priest knock out the most powerful lies of Satan, and I think that's an important thing for us to learn how to recognize those lies and hold them captive so that we can draw near to God. Yeah, that's great. It's just occurred to me, Amy, but one more lie, you should be good enough. Amen. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, we're never going to be good enough. I mean, I think that, that that's settled, right? Jesus is the only one who's good enough. So, um, I would maybe, I, my last uh, parting thing would be don't try to recall all the things that we said. I would go to a verse like 416, you know, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive help in our time of need. Like, Take, I mean, every one of those phrases is God starting a conversation with you. It's all scripture is God breathed, it is useful. You can count it as like, imagine stepping onto an elevator and somebody's in there. If you just start the conversation, you don't know if you're annoying them. You don't know if they want to talk to you. But if they start the conversation, it's going, right? Well, God said to you, like, hey, you know, Ryan, draw near with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace. And Lord, you tell me to draw near, and I don't really know how to right now. I feel like I don't feel like I deserve it, but you did say it's your throne of grace, which I don't know if I really believe that you're having grace on me right now, but I know it's true. And like, So just talk to him as if he started the conversation, and you know he actually said that. I believe the word of God is like the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. So take those as words that you can stand on, and when you draw near to him through his word, you spend more than five minutes there, you're going to encounter him. You're going to feel like you're drawing near to him. I love that. And you saying that, here's here's how I want to end, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to do just that. I want us to spend a few moments and a few minutes encountering him and spending time, whether it's in this, this passage or not, but just praying and, and drawing near to the Lord. So that's how we're going to end um, if you want to, you can open up your Bibles to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 and spend time in there. But I'm going to give you some prompts, and I just want you to pray. And if you just need to reflect on what you've heard um, or you want to pray through the prompts that I'm giving you, take this time to draw near and to let the Lord draw near to you in return. Um, so I'm going to invite even the band back up on stage as we do this. But Ryan, Amy, thank you so much. Such a privilege having you guys here.